are listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Welcome to this week's episode of Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Radhika Mulgafkar, VP of Supply and Methodology at Nori, a carbon removal marketplace based in the United States. Periodically, we like to check in on the developments across the Atlantic, and lately there has been a lot going on for our European friends and partners. So here with me to discuss the EU's proposed 2040 emission targets, the Green Claims Directive, and the conclusion of the trilogue negotiations between the European Council, Parliament, and Commission on the Carbon Removal Certification Framework is one of our favorite guests, Sebastian Manhart, Senior Policy Advisor at Carbon Future, an initiator and chair of the DVNE, Germany's CDR Association. Welcome, Sebastian. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to be here. Okay, so we have a ton to cover, so let's just jump right in and start with the Carbon Removal Certification Framework. It was really probably the biggest news of the week. So can you just start with reminding our audience what the CRCF is and why it's so important? Yeah, sure. So the Common Removal Certification Framework, or CSCF for short, is probably one of the most ambitious pieces of CDR legislation anywhere in the world. And it tries to answer the basic question, what does carbon removal and especially high quality carbon removal look like and how can we certify it as a government? And in Europe, it's kind of that missing building block that we need to achieve net zero. Because in Europe, we have a lot of big frameworks that are missing carbon removal right now, and the CSCF paves the way to bring it in. And the CSCF, briefly to just explain what's in it, it has four categories of three of carbon removal. So it has, you know, carbon farming, which includes also nature-based solutions. It has carbon storage and products. You know, if you're thinking about construction materials or concrete, and it also has a permanent removal, which are what you probably deal with a lot in this podcast as well as far as I know, durable removals like dark specs, biochar, and so on. And now it's also included, and we might want to talk about this later, which is controversial emission reductions in carbon farming as a fourth category in a carbon removal framework, which is really not what should be happening. And all of these are subject to certain quality criteria, and then the CSCF essentially lays out a certification framework of how exactly these different four buckets can turn into units that then could be used in all sorts of different ways. And why is it important? First, at EU level, as I said, this is what we need to integrate, for example, removals into compliance markets or other very important legislation against greenwashing and so on. At national level, if you are a European member state and you're thinking about removals, you're not going to reinvent the wheel. You're going to leverage what's already in the CSCF. And I expect even beyond Europe, countries or even regional blocks might just copy and paste it just like people have done for the GDPR and privacy regulation, right? And the final and probably most immediate is in the voluntary carbon market. If you are a buyer and you know this is coming down the pipe, or just if you want to trust the judgment of you know having an EU stamp on something, you're probably going to align your purchasing behavior with what is already in the CSCF. So overall, I think hugely impactful. Yeah, obviously, when I introduced it, it was a tri-party agreement. And so I'm assuming that may be why emission reductions through carbon farming snuck in, but can you maybe expound on that a little bit? Because it is interesting that it's part of a carbon removal framework. Interesting to say the least, highly problematic. I mean, if you read any of the press releases of civil society, they are going 
after this pretty hard. I mean, read the carbon market watch, for example, and I recommend it, right? Like it's, it's true. It shouldn't have been in there. They already started with, they kind of, it snuck in through peatland restoration, which is emission reduction and then turns into carbon removal. But frankly, if you look at it now, it's just its own thing. Why has that happened? 36% of the EU's budget is agriculture. So the agricultural lobby in the EU is very strong. If you think about how this works, both in Parliament and in the Council, which represents the member states, there are some member states that had this very high on the agenda, given the farmers that are already literally with their trucks on the street right now in Europe. So yeah, it's an unfortunate result. We'll, we can talk about some of the many good things, but this is unfortunately something that probably is not so welcoming. Yeah. So let's start with what exactly was decided on February 20th, because that is the date. And then tell us some of the positive things you think will come out of it and the positive, maybe even the positives that developed during the process of doing this, because this hasn't been a short discussion. No, the way that it works, essentially, the commission puts out a proposal that was November 2022. And, and then it's one and a half years in this case of negotiation. It was supposed to be February 19th, but as they often like to do, it got done at like 3 a.m. on February 20th. That's why that date. But essentially, the trilogue marks the end of this kind of negotiation between the three key EU bodies that you mentioned. And we don't have the final text yet. That will take a bit longer, probably next week or the week after. But we do already have the press releases by the commission and the official one. And also, I've seen the text just before the final meeting, and not a lot will have changed. So we have good reasons to believe that this is kind of what's happened. And on the positive side for me, also, this was not the case originally. We now have different units. I mentioned the four buckets. In the original framework, they were all treated the same. So a carbon farming unit was the same as a permanent removal unit, which creates a whole ton of challenges when you're trying to apply this. Now, at least we have four different units, one for each. A second one that I've been very involved in from an advocacy perspective is tech openness and the definitions making sure that you actually have an inclusive framework that doesn't a priori pick winners and exclude technologies, which is what was happening. And now we've got definitions aligned with the IPCC. Nobody knows why it wasn't aligned from the, from the get-go. And we've got tech open definitions of permanent removal. So this is really good stuff that at least leaves the room open. And the final thing is use cases. That's been a huge point of critique that we have a certification, but for what? And kind of the commission in particular has been refusing to say how this is going to be used. Now in the final version, at least we've got references to things like the Corporate Social Sustainability Reporting Directive or the Green Claims Directive that shows kind of these linkages are starting to form. Challenges, I mean, the biggest one we already spoke about, right? Emission reduction should simply never have found a way into the CSCF. And that is a huge blow to the credibility of the CSCF as a whole. And... And another one that was not really a topic of discussion, but I think should be, is certifying non-European removals. It is very much focused only on Europe. It has a provision for geological storage in Norway, Iceland, and the UK, because frankly, that's where Europe will have to store most of its CO2. But it doesn't currently allow for the certification of non-European removals. And this is a problem because climate change is a global challenge. Conditions are much more favorable in the global south or in tropical regions in many cases. And so this is something that I hope we're going to see in other legislation. But overall, at least as far as I'm concerned, it's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, the other interesting thing about that is some of these solutions are not geographically bound, like ocean solutions, right? How do you say it's a European solution in the broad expanses of the ocean? So it'll be interesting to see how that all develops. 
So that leads me to my final question for the CRCF, which is what's next? How does this move forward? And, you know, what do you expect to see in the next 12 to 18 months? So let's start kind of with the with the regulation itself, with the legal text. So that's been agreed on. Uh, it will be adopted in April before the election in June, the European election, and it should be implemented by the end of 2024. What's happening in parallel is that the European Commission is tasked with developing the actual methodologies. And this is crucial. This is the meat on the bones because the legal text does not go into detail about how exactly a DAC credit will be certified or a DAC unit will be certified. So this is really, really important. And the commission will work throughout the year and will have 12 months after implementation. So end of 25, roughly beginning 26 to bring out the first methodologies. And the regulation gives some indication. They say that they should prioritize uh, approaches. They call it methodologies. I call it approaches that have significant potential first and second that have clear co-benefits. What I'm hearing is that the commission is going to start with duck specs and carbon farming, which is welcoming, but I also find it a bit problematic because to me, it doesn't really align with the criteria I just mentioned, if I think about it. And also it excludes 95% of current deliveries, right? In durable carbon removal, coming mainly from biochar carbon removal, mineralization, enhanced rock weathering. And so what's currently happening and what I'm also going to be working on over the next few months is trying to help the commission do more in the same time. Because obviously, if they have 12 months, they're going to just try to get whatever they can done. And one approach is to focus higher level. So instead of trying to do what the VCM has been doing for, for years, which is develop standards with hundreds of scientists, is focus one level higher on kind of principles-based guidance that sets the right boundaries, but then allow the VCM to deliver on the standards. That way, the commission could actually do four or five or even more methodologies in the same time. But yeah, it's to be seen There's a big meeting in April, mid-April, that people can also watch online and where a lot of this will be decided. Well, good luck, Sebastian. I agree with your kind of perspective on creating a broader framework because we also just don't know what's going to work. So you don't want to get too locked into, and the VCMs can be more maybe reactionary to the technology as it develops versus large government institutions. So Good luck on that. And I hope that you're successful in making them change their approach to how they develop these methodologies. Let's move on to another big topic of conversation, which are the 2040 emission targets. So obviously this goes hand in hand with carbon removal because everybody knows emission reduction first, then carbon removal. So the EU proposed 90% reduction targets for 2040 is significantly more ambitious than previous goals. So what are the key factors driving this increased ambition and what's your sense that it's realistic to achieve these targets considering the breadth of the EU economic situation and, and regulatory situation? Yes, I mean, it, it is a very ambitious target. To be clear, it recommended three options. The least ambitious is 75%, the, then it's 85%, and then there's a 90 plus percent, which is what the commission is recommending. It is a communication, so it's before a proposal Proposal. The proposal is going to come next year in early 2025. But just to be clear, there is urgency behind it because uh, the EU is expected uh, to deliver its next NDC next year, its ne next nationally determined contribution, which will have to have a finite, a final decision on this topic. So uh, by next year, we will have these locked in stone. And now it is there's an 800 page impact assessment coming with the communication, which goes into a lot of depth. 
and, and a lot has gone behind it. And one thing or two things to pull out is the cost. They try to quantify the cost of inaction. So they justify the 90% by essentially looking at what would it cost us between 2030 and 2050 if we didn't achieve this, this level of, of emission reduction. And they estimated it at 2.4 trillion euros, which is an exorbitant amount of money. So this is kind of one of the drivers is the cost of inaction. And the second one is the EU wants to clearly disincentivize investments into carbon intensive technologies and literally fuel the green transition. So this is, these are kind of the, the overarching objectives of why it wants to go very, very ambitious. Is it realistic? I mean, the EU has a 55% reduction target by 2030. Uh, it's currently not on track. It's on track for 51. So we'll need additional measures to achieve 55. Some countries are more ahead than others. And also it's contingent on a lot of carbon capture and storage, fossil CCS and CDR. Without it, uh, it won't be able to achieve these 90%. So yeah, it, whether this will actually be the direction of travel depends entirely on the new parliament and the new commission, which will come into force later this year. They might water it down or they might back this kind of ambition. Can you just explain if you know how they're defining or how they're measuring the cost of inaction? Does that include things like public health outcomes, obviously environmental catastrophes. Just curious how they came to that number. It's a mix. It looks at a number of things. I mean, especially in Europe, very prevalent, the costs of yeah adaptation, as well as all the catastrophes that are already happening on a yearly basis. So that's kind of the primary one, but it also looks at industry and obviously what it would mean for one pathway versus the other in terms of the industrial growth. And a lot of it is banking on millions of sustainable, uh, high-quality green jobs, right? So there's also this idea that a higher ambition here will have some consequences. An example, I mean, I'm a trained economist. If you're going to put a lot of money into something immediately, you will probably first drive up inflation, which will not really help right now. But it will also lead to lower prices of renewable energy in the long term, which will then stabilize the situation and lead to a lot of growth. So that's kind of currently the thinking, but again, it's obviously a very complex topic. Yeah, very complex. I just, you know, it's a huge number. So I was just curious sort of what the general inputs were. So you mentioned that this target, at least the 55% target, and I assume the 90% target also includes some sort of carbon removal. So what gets you excited about this idea of incorporating carbon removal into the emission targets and what concerns you? So the 55% one actually only has land use, land use change and forestry, LULUCF uh, target of 300 something megatons. It doesn't have any industrial removal targets right now. For this 2041, what they're suggesting in the impact assessment, again, this is very much hidden in the notes, uh, 300 pages in, but it's 75 megatons of durable carbon removal by 2040. And which, you know, it's great to see actually a number put down of this kind of ambition. And I'm super excited about that. I really hope that this number can make it into the actual proposal and then the legislation because um, we need this kind of ambitious, clear, dedicated carbon removal target. And the challenge that I see is first and foremost, right now, for example, LULUCF, CCS and CDR, it's all just thrown into the same bucket. And that is highly problematic because then you can, it can lead to a lot of adverse outcomes in terms of how we achieve this. So we need to differentiate it and civil society as well as very clear carbon market watch is running a huge campaign on this. We need separate targets. And we are not seeing links to the CSCF yet. Again, that's a problem. Like if it says 75 megatons, what do we mean? 
we should mean durable removal as certified in the CSCF. And right now, and again, recurring challenge, it's only mentioning direct air capture and bioenergy will come capture and storage. And this is a recurring theme that people say durable removal, but they only mean ducks and bags. And again, that's so limiting. That's part of the solution, right? So we need to look beyond that. But yeah, overall, I think it's very promising. Again, we'll have to see how especially the new parliament picks this up. But by end of next year, um, we will have uh, a target set in stone in Europe. So a side question, and I don't know if you can answer this, but it's interesting that the EU favors DAX and BEX. We often hear the same complaint here in the US, except it's probably just DAC, right? BEX even gets left behind. So do you have a sense of why those technologies have broken out the way they have in the EU? Is it because they're easy to measure? Do they have good lobbies? You know, why why are they so popular, do you think? I think there's a bunch of ways to answer that, right? I mean, from a regulatory perspective, we've got the 2009 CCS directive, which essentially manages monitoring and liability for point source CCS. But it does now provide a framework already for monitoring and liability of transport and geological storage of ducts and becks, right? So it makes it much lower risk from a regulatory perspective. And I think when I'm a policymaker and I'm looking for low-hanging fruits, that's what I'm going for. The second one is in Europe that is going to be the huge volumes in the next 10 years. Like if I look at the projected volume coming online between 2025 and 27, you know, a, a large majority of those 75 megatons is going to be back. So I totally get it from a volume perspective. Ducks, sometimes in Europe, I'm a little bit more, like we don't really have the energy mix, right? Right now, 22% of Europe's energy consumption is renewable, 22%. We've got such a long way to go until we have a fully renewable grid and energy consumption. And so I'm a bit confused why there's so much emphasis right now on ducks. I think it's gonna be part of the solution, but if I think about right now, biochar carbon removal, enhanced rock weathering, other solutions will be able to deliver much more. So yeah, but I think it comes down to, again, the risk as a policymaker and taking the low hanging fruits. That makes a ton of sense. So you are talking about some of the potential economic and social implications, but can you maybe expound on other, besides maybe green jobs, other social implications or economic benefits of such a rapid transition away from fossil fuels? And, you know, do you see any specific concerns from certain member states or industries that might slow this down? Yeah. I think it's good to understand kind of the, the broader context in Europe. So first, like in many places, we're seeing a shift to the political right, right? Which are parties that are generally tend to be more climate skeptic. We're also seeing, you know, we've come out of a, a period of very high inflation, five plus percent at times eight plus percent. We're seeing sluggish growth. I mean, in general, less than 1% at the moment. Germany's just down revised their forecasts, right? Like this is really, really important. High energy prices, the prices in Europe are more than twice the American energy prices. So all of this creates a big picture that I think is really important when you think about where Europe wants to go. Then the, I mean, the wars now that are happening, the over-reliance on Russian fossil fuels, all of that is playing into kind of this increased ambition by policymakers to, to break free of a lot of these challenges. So that's where kind of, you know, creating green jobs, but also finally create like, you know, low cost renewables, um, a renewables grid. Those are all things that um, policymakers want to get going as soon as possible. It will have a lot of 
unintended consequences for a lot of people. And I know that on this show, you cover um, the environmental justice component quite significantly. So um, two things I think to highlight there, which probably most people don't know about in Europe, we have two vehicles to target environmental justice and kind of the people left behind or the industries left behind. For the people, it's called the Social Climate Fund, which is a significant fund. It's around 87 billion euros over a course of six years that is specifically going to people living in energy poverty. And this is used by the member states. They make a 25% contribution, but it goes specifically to help people out who are basically left behind in this process. And then we've got the just transition mechanism, which is also 55 billion euros, which goes to industries. So this is something that governments can essentially use to, to help out industries that are being left behind. It's not a perfect situation. There will be a lot of hiccups, but I personally think that we've got a good mix of vehicles funded by, by, by the way, polluters, because a lot of this is coming through the ETS allowances to make up for the, the challenges that we'll have in the green transition. I have a, a follow-up. You did mention um, the shift rightwards in terms of the government. I was in London in October and I did hear some conversations about, you know, the UK pulling back because obviously they've had a shift rightward to their environmental commitments. Do you anticipate anything like that from the EU member states or or is that a concern at all? A huge concern. I mean, we have a European election this June. And the forecast is that the, the right and it's also the far right is going to probably have unprecedented gains. Like this is this will have an impact on climate policy in Europe. We've got big elections. I mean, Germany has a big election next year and there's a lot happening right now. I don't know how much people here follow in terms of the, the right, the far right party and what's currently happening in terms of protests against it in Germany. So there's a lot happening and it will have a big impact, undoubtedly. And we've rarely seen far right gains correlate with more climate ambition and money for CDR. So it's to be seen. I'm hopeful, but it is a fairly bleak situation in many places right now. Yeah, I I think that's why the Biden administration is pushing money out as fast as they can, right? Like just get it out the door because once it's gone, it's gone. All right, let's move on to the Green Claims Directive, which is the third bucket that we were going to talk about today. So the GCD aims to combat greenwashing and increase consumer trust in corporate environmental claims, which, if it's successful, would be a huge help even to me because I'm always confused when I go to the grocery store, for example. So what are the key provisions of this directive and how will it be enforced? Yeah, and maybe again, starting with some really interesting research that the European Commission did in the impact assessment to this, they found that 53% of all environmental claims in Europe were misleading and 40% unfounded. So this is just context of what is happening. And, and when we say environmental claims or green claims, they're the same. And there's two types of green claims, maybe just for the listeners, you know, there's product claims about a product being carbon neutral, think the Apple Watch. And then there's corporate claims about a company being net zero, for example. But these are always mar external marketing, user-facing, client-facing claims. And th this is a huge challenge, and I'm very glad that the EU is stepping in here. And now, what exactly does the directive do? How, how is it enforced? I think the first thing to mention is that there's a, a there's going to be a pre-verification of environmental claims. So if your company making these claims, you have to submit them before being able to make them, and they need to be accredited before you can make them. Then there's massive penalties. Uh, up to four percent of global annual turnover can be fined. 
So th these are very similar amounts to what has been done in the GDPR for privacy infringements, but it has teeth. Like you will have to pay a lot of money if you get this wrong. And for example, the EU commissioner, one of them immediately said about the Apple announcement, absolutely not. This would not fly in Europe in future. And, and there are some exemptions. This is also important. You know, if you're a micro enterprise, so you have less than 10 employees, if you're even a small and medium sized company, less than 250 employees, there are provisions in terms of when you have to comply and to which extent. But uh, yeah, it is a big, big, important piece of regulation that will change quite a lot. Yeah, I have to say the Apple piece just very specifically was baffling to me because both I read <laughs> their carbon neutral claim and then I tried to dig into what that meant, couldn't really find anything. And then I read their report and well, the claims they made, let's just say I thought like if a Delta Airlines had made those same claims, they would have been under a much bigger scrutiny than Apple was. Yeah. It's very well, interesting. It was, it was a good clip, wasn't it? I mean, I got some good PR out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Weather was a good clip. Yes. <laughs> okay. So how how is CDR specifically impacted by the GCD? Actually, significantly. So originally, there was a fear of a, of a ban on all types of offsets to back up a green claim, because this was kind of the direction of travel of the GCD. Now that's not been the decision. And to be, again, to be clear, it's not yet a finalized piece of legislation. This is kind of the, the parliament has almost finalized its eternal stance. But this is what I'm currently talking about is basically the parliamentary committees, which lead the way, have come out with this negotiating position. And what it has, it has a lot of good stuff in there. It has a like-for-like -like principle in there. So, you know, durable emissions, long-term emissions with durable removal, short-term emissions with temporary removals. And it says that this is also great that CDR has to be certified under the CSCF if you want to use it as an offset. So it's only durable, you know, carbon removal under the CSCF here. And it also allows extra EU offsets to be used if they are certified under an equivalent scheme to the CSCF. So all of this is, is really great. It does also say, and this is where I personally think it's a bit more controversial, <laughs> that you can only use it, you can only use it for residual emissions. So none of these carbon removals can be used for anything that's not residual. Residual is not defined, which is kind of the problem, right? So this is very limiting. And civil society is pushing for this. And I guess that this is the safe choice. Industry is not pushing for this because it will lead to delayed climate action, right? Like in my view, and many share this, rather than saying residual emissions only, you should say durable carbon removal under the CSCF only, like for life principle, and then the price of durable carbon removal will be so much higher than any emission reduction. And then if you start buying at five or 10 or 30% residual emissions, it doesn't really matter that much in my perspective. So I would let the price and the quality regulated more than saying residual, which doesn't mean anything right now. But again, this is kind of one of the challenges that I think it still has. But yeah, it will have a huge impact because if I'm a buyer and I want to keep making green claims, which I do, and I will shift my purchases from, you know, emission avoidance and reduction to CSEF certified removals. Yeah, I totally agree with you on the residual emissions. You could always, you know, contact Holly Jean Buck, who wrote a paper on that if the EU needs some definitions. But it's never made sense to me. I, I've always been like, you're exactly your point, like the cost of CDR is so much higher. Why wouldn't they reduce if this was the forcing mechanism? So hopefully they will rethink that and your advocacy can maybe impact it. So 
There's also, you know, some reporting bills. Is this the EU's version of the California Bill 1305, which we discussed with Holly Jean Buck and Will Burns a few episodes ago, or, or different or overlapping? Well, I think what they share is they both kind of are attempts at starting to regulate marketing claims for carbon offsets, right? But they do it in kind of different ways. Again, I'm not an expert on the California bill, but my understanding also from listening to your show is that the California bill is really about businesses starting to make information available publicly, right? It's it's much more about the reporting side to actually show what they're doing. And it does it targets only really the voluntary carbon market and it's less specifically focused on green claims. And it's also not really providing a framework. Like what I just told you, all the details I told you in terms of also enforcement and all everything else, I don't think that's part of the California bill and green claims. So kind of similar area, but I would say the European one is goes quite a bit further when it comes to green claims. He's always ahead of the U.S. in terms of regulation. So what impact do you think the GCD will have on businesses that are particularly small and medium-sized? And are you concerned about these bureaucratic burdens maybe disproportionately disadvantaging smaller companies? That's obviously a risk. I mean, having run a startup myself of around 40, 50 employees, I know that these are huge concerns. I remember when the GDPR came into force and we had to figure out how to do it. That's scary. And I would say first micro enterprises, so less than 10 people are exempt. And, and then small and medium-sized enterprises are not exempt, but and just to remind people, 99% of European companies are SMEs. So this is a hugely important yeah, segment. And But the European Commission is tasked with, for example, facilitating their compliance and making resources available to them. So again, there will be funding to help small and medium companies and medium-sized companies in particular. But I think it will be good because um, first, it will increase consumer trust right? Like which should help industry in general. And second, it creates a level playing field. If you're also with the big companies, because now you all have to play by the same rules and maybe a small company can't afford some potential lawsuits that a big company would have had. And so now they all have to abide by the same and, and they all get fined comparatively the same. So I think it will also help with competition. But again, that's just my hypothesis. All right. Well, I want to know as a final few questions, how do these three initiatives, you know, the emission targets, the GCD, the CRCF, interrelate in the EU's broader climate strategy? So in the EU, the overarching goal is the Green Deal, which foresees net zero by 2050, right? And then we've got a couple of vehicles to get there. We've got the LULUCF or land-based sector. We've got the emission sharing regulation and the emission trading system, which between them cover all other sectors. Those are huge vehicles that have existed for a long time. None of them, with the exception of LULUCF, currently includes CDR. And so this is why a lot of things are now happening. I would say the emission targets are a key stepping stone towards the 2050 targets, right? And that, that will apply to 27 member states and will lead to subsequent legislation in 27 member states. The CSDF is really just the building block that you need for everything else. So kind of the foundational policy. And the Green Claims Directive is very much focused on one specific application, which is green claims, user-facing green claims. So this is kind of where these three, they play slightly different roles, but they're obviously interconnected. And one thing that I think people will see more and more will be reference of the CFTF in other legislations, like it is happening in the green claims now. And I know that a lot of people are very interested, example, compliance markets, the EU Commission has to come up with a proposal by 2026 
for ETS integration, which at the earliest will be implemented in 2031. And it is very, very likely that it will reference the CSCF permanent removals as the first removals to be integrated. But yeah, that's how they kind of go together. All right. And then final question for you, Sebastian, which is maybe a little broad, but what can other regions, other countries learn from the EU process? And what would you advocate to other parts of the world to adopt from this EU process or these bills that you've seen? What are your favorite pieces of legislation? The first after all this bragging about EU policy, let's start with the word of humility. We do not have, we're not the best at policy in general. We have found a way to do policy that works for the European continent. Like American policymaking is very different, but also very effective in doing stuff. Like if I look at how quickly capital has been deployed at carbon removals in the US, it keeps being deployed as we saw last week from the DOE again, compared to Europe, which is still talking about definitions. Like it's very, it's just a different approach. And it also reflects the electoral realities. Like in the US, you have very little predictability. Two years, everything changes every two years. Whereas in, in Europe, you know, we have a lot of predictability through the European Union. That's where we can make 2040 targets that will then flow down to 27 member states. And that will likely not change. A lot of things change, but not these foundational building blocks. So I think very different scenarios. I personally find that kind of predictability and long-term planning very, very useful. And... And what other countries, I think, can can take away from this, I think the CSCF could become the gold standard that a lot of other countries might copy and paste quite literally with a couple of adaptations, right? Like you've got hundreds of experts debating this for years with industry input, with academic input, civil society input, and, and come up with a really solid framework. So if you're thinking of doing something in the CDR space and you need a reference point, it might be good to piggyback off what the European Union is already doing. But again, all to say that I wish, for example, the European Union was moving quicker on a lot of capital deployment. But yeah, on definitions, certifications, on that stuff, we're pretty good. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if the states in the U.S. are becoming more like the EU and that they're predictable, that they're either Democratic or Republican, but our federal government <laughs> obviously is much less uh, predictable. And every two years we have turnover, like you said. Well, Sebastian... As always, I learned a ton. I so appreciate you being on the show and would love to check in with you in a few months as things progress and make sure the EU is still on track. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.